psalm. Does anybody know what book of the Bible we're in? Ah, there you go, the book of James, James chapter 4. We've been in this book since the first Sunday in January. We have a few more weeks as we continue on in our study on about drawing near to God. And I was just commenting to my wife this week how much I have enjoyed preaching through the book of James. This is the first time I've preached through the book. I've read it many times, preached sermons from it, but this is the first time I've done an expository series from beginning to end. And uh, I love it. James is so preachable. I mean, he is a good communicator. He gives us things in lists. He paints word pictures. He gives outlines. His statements are clear and concise, and I hope that you're enjoying it. But more than that, I hope that it's aiding you in your attempt to draw near to God. Today we go to James chapter 4, verses 7 through 17, and the title that I've given to this section of Scripture is Draw Near Through Submission. James 4, 7 begins, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Speak not evil of one another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou be a judge of the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Go to now ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Let's pray and invite God to be our teacher this morning. Dear Lord, we open ourselves up to you this day, inviting you, Lord, to impart your truth into our lives. We are so thankful that we have a clear revelation from you, that we are assured of the fact that these words are not the words of men, but that these men were inspired by you, O God, and that every word is a word that comes from you. Father, I pray that we would take those words with that weight and that we would allow them, Lord, to shape our lives and our thinking and our direction. Lord, I pray and ask that you would help me to clearly communicate your word. Help me to exposit this text. Help me to explain what James said and what it meant when he said it so that we do not misunderstand you in any way. God, may your Holy Spirit move among us and take this word and Apply it to our lives so that we, we live differently because of it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You might have noticed that I paused as I read that text. It's not because I was losing my place or because I need a better prescription of magnifiers. It is because I was trying to accentuate the punctuation 
in those statements, uh, James writes in a series of short sentences and he encapsulates them. And so I wanted each one of them to kind of stand and resonate with you for a moment. As we come into this text of scripture, we have to acknowledge we're jumping into the middle of a chapter. We started reading in verse 7 instead of uh, verse 1. And that is because we previously studied verses 1 through 8 in this chapter in our introductory sermon in this series. And that's because it contained the main theme for the entire book in verse 8. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. And so we started there so that we could orient ourselves in the right direction as we approach the book of James. And so I just want to review with you for a moment these first six verses so that we ensure that we have the right context and that I'm not just jumping off, leaping into my own line of thought. In verses 1 through 5 of this chapter, James highlights the tension that is in the Christian's life between drawing near to God and being drawn away from God. Uh, Think about it. uh, The problems that James addresses in these verses are conflict internally and externally. Where, Where do wars come from and fighting among your members? And he's saying, hey, one of the problems that you guys have is is there's internal conflict. You're fighting with yourself. You have some collision that's going on. You've got some tension that's going different ways. And that's overflowing out so that you're having some problems with some other people too. There's conflict and he addresses that problem. He also addresses the problem of misdirected prayers. You have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you might consume it upon your own lust. And he says, hey, you, you've got a problem. Misguided prayers, they're not getting answered. You're asking the wrong thing for the wrong motive. And he also addresses the problem of misplaced allegiance. He says, you're, you're a friend of the world. Don't you know the friendship of the world is enmity with God? You can't be the friend of the world and the friend of God. You've got a misplaced allegiance. And, and so all of that, it, it just... It, goes with the entire tension that is in the book of James that we are trying to draw near to God, but there is also this drawing away that is taking place. While the problems are manifold, the cause is singular. Look back with me at verses 1 through 5, and I want you to notice one word. It is the word lust. Verse 1, From whence come wars and fightings among you, come they not even of your lusts? That war in your members. Verse 2, you lust and have not. Verse 3, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume upon your lusts. Verse 5, do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? You know what I imagined as I was studying that this week? I I imagined an alert, an alarm. Every time that word lust was said, I heard beep, 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 beep. Beep, right? You and I all know what that is. That, that is the international sound that we become accustomed to, that that is an alarm. It's, a, it, it's, it's an alarm clock. It's a fire alarm. It is some sort of warning, and we are not to ignore it. Yes, it, it is redundant. Yes, it is the same tone. Yes, it is driving us crazy, but you better not neglect it. 
I think about when we lived in Colorado, there were people who had died because of carbon monoxide poisoning uh, in the night when that built up in their house. And so we uh, were a young family. We had young children. We were concerned about that. So we purchased a carbon monoxide detector and we plugged that in and we put it into our house. Can I tell you, if that thing were to go off in the middle of the night, we would not just roll over and go back to sleep because we would know that even though that gas is scentless, we can't smell it, it is dead and it would kill us if that alarm is sounding we better pay attention and we better get up and do something about it that is what James is doing for you and I with this word lust he's saying yes it manifests itself in different problems in your life but the cause is singular it is lust the word lust means to desire to please yourself or pleasing your own desires We can lust for many different things. We can lust for money. We can lust for fame. We can lust for uh, for food. We can we can desire to please ourselves in many different ways. The Greek word that is used here is hedone. It is where we get our English word hedonism, and hedonism simply means seeking personal pleasure or personal enjoyment as the primary goal in life. Now I know that every succeeding generation or every previous generation often likes to blame the younger generation right them kids today causing all this problem well may I turn the tables on you for a moment this morning Uh, do y'all how many y'all remember those hippie days back in the 70s see that was before I, I just arrived on earth in 74 so I missed those I I you know my generation got some problems of our own we can blame but some of y'all were hippies my mom had a little hippie in her, and I remember that, uh, that she had a T-shirt in her drawer. She never wore this T-shirt, but as a little kid, I liked it because it had like a picture of a bear or something on the front of it, and it had this statement, if it feels good, ah, hippies. Wait a minute. Some of y'all younger people recognize that. <laughs> gotcha. That's hedonism. Right, hedonism is the academic word, if you will, but the philosophy is that that revolutionary thought that came in the 60s and the 70s. If it feels good, do it, man, because this is the only life that we get, and you got to please yourself. Don't worry about pleasing anybody else. You know what the problem is? Those hippies grew up, they cut their hair, and they went to work in our universities and other places. And no longer was that a revolution that passed... It is a culture into which you and I live today. And so when you and I read this and say, James, why are you such a stick in the mud? Why are you condemning people for wanting to please themselves? What's the big deal with that? You and I need to circle back to the first time that James uses this word lust so that you and I can understand what it means biblically instead of just seeing it through the lens of our hedonistic society where we say, well, if, if, if you're enjoying it and it's not hurting anybody and it's not illegal then why are you condemning it? Well, look back to James chapter 1, the very first use of the word lust in the book of James. Verse 14, James says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own, what? Of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You see, it is our own internal lust 
that has a magnetic attraction to sin. We're born with it. There is something inside of us that craves sin. That's what it wants. It is in our flesh. It is in our DNA. It is in our humanity. It is this sin nature that we have. And every one of us has to contend with this problem of lust because it is always going to be magnetically attracted to sin. Our lust will naturally draw us away from God as we are drawn towards satisfying our own selfish desires. Can I frame it theologically for you? Just think about the original sin. It is a sin of lust. It was Adam and Eve looking at the fruit saying, it looks good to our eyes. It looks appetizing. I think that would taste good in my mouth and feel good in my belly. And it's supposed to make me wiser. I want it. And it was their lust that drew them away from God toward the forbidden fruit. And it produced sin. And that sin has produced death. And it's passed on to every generation. But thank God... For grace. In James 1, 4, uh, 4, 1 through 5, James highlights that tension, that, that lust problem that we all have that's drawing us away from God. But he doesn't leave us out there hanging. In verse 6, he says this, but he giveth more grace. Oh man, I love those words. He giveth more grace. More than what? More than your sin. More than your failure. More than your past. Right, Romans 5 says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Do you understand that if it were not for grace, we would be drawn away from God forever in life and eternity? That lust that is in us would draw us away from God, and if it weren't for God's grace, God would not have sent His Son to die for us. And then the Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace are you saved. The only reason you're saved is because of God's grace, not because of your merit. The only way you stay saved is because of God's grace. And so James says, hey, look, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace draws you near. And God in His grace has opened up avenues in which we can get closer and closer to God. And one of those avenues that His grace has made, is that we can draw near to God through submission. Which brings us back to our starting verse, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This is James's directive that begins this section of, of Scripture. He has finished one thought, now he is moving on to another. It is connected, but it is going in a new direction. It is expounding more. And this begins this section of Scripture. And the following verses go on to explain to us exactly what submit means. You, you and I are not good at submitting. We don't like to submit. We don't like to submit to authority. We don't like to submit to somebody else. And James is not going to allow us to define what submission means for me. We, we live in this day and time when everybody wants to define what it means for them. Look, truth means what it means. And James says, here's the truth about submission. You and I don't get to define it. 
And so James wants his readers to know what submission to God looks like. And and so he paints a vivid word picture beginning with the word submit itself. Submit means to place yourself under the command of another. It was a common military term in Greek in James's day, and it meant to arrange troops under the command of a leader. And so the, the Roman army was world famous. It had marched around the Mediterranean Sea. It had conquered every foe that it had faced off with. And that is because of its force and its structure. And so everybody understood what it meant to submit yourselves. They had this military picture of the Roman army with its generals and its commanders and its colonels and his captains and, and the troops ordered underneath them. It also had a non-military use. The non-military use was someone who wasn't conscripted into military service. It, it meant a voluntary attitude of giving in. A voluntary attitude of cooperating with someone else. A voluntary attitude of assuming responsibility. A voluntary attitude of carrying out a burden. And so it was used in military and non-military life. What James is saying to you and I is that this submission to God is more than just saying, Yes, sir. It requires a series of actions. You know, sometimes we get real good at the lip service. Sometimes we get good at saying, yes, sir, and not doing what we're supposed to do. My goal has been to embarrass my children every Sunday that I preach, and so I don't want to disappoint them today. I I will group them all three together in this one. Uh, From a young age, we, we practiced good manners with our sons. We wanted them to say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. We didn't want, yeah, nah, mm mm-mm, and so... I found that when they were little, little guys learning to speak and and even on, I would punctuate every sentence with, yes, sir, if I were telling them to do something. Uh, Will you you go pick up your room? Yes, sir. And they would say it back to me. And so I said it so much that then they got into the habit of it, and they got pretty good at saying, yes, sir. But then then as they grew, they got got a little more knowledge And I noticed that sometimes I could tell them to do something, they'd be real good and give me a good, strong, yes, sir. And I'd follow up on it and find out they had not done the yes, sir-ing that I wanted them to do. And I'm afraid that you and I as Christians have gotten pretty good at that. Amen. You know, that's a punctuation word we say at the end of every prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, amen means truly. Be it so. Yes, sir. Oh, man. We're good at saying it. But we're not always good at taking the actions. And so James is saying, hey, we can draw near to God through submission. But submission is more than just good manners to God. It's more than just saying, yes, Lord. It's more than just saying amen at the end of your prayer. It actually requires some action. And so James gives us seven action statements in verses 7 through 17 following his directive to submit. The directive is there. It's one sentence. Submit yourselves to God. And then we get a list of seven actions. I want to give those to you this morning. Number one, resist the devil. Resist the devil. Verse 7, he goes on to say this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What is James saying? He's saying, well, if you're going to submit to God, you got to start putting up some resistance to the temptations of the devil. 
Sadly, some Christians know very little of resisting temptations. There are some people who are genuinely born again, but they give in to every desire, every temptation, every craving that pops up in front of them. They, they literally put up no resistance. Can I tell you that when you are an easy mark for the devil, he'll keep tempting you? If he knows that he can trigger your lust with this temptation, guess what temptation he's going to work into your life regularly? If he knows that he can cause you to lose your temper over this, how many times do you think that's going to come up in your life from day to day and week to week? If you're an easy mark, the devil's just going to keep laying out the temptations and you're going to keep biting the hook. But if you will put up some kind of fight... If you will show some resistance, he will move on to an easier target. There are billions of people in this world. And if you put up a little bit of fight, the Bible says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's the word of God. All you got to do is put up some fight. Now, like James, if James has taught me anything, I got to be practical. I just can't tell you to resist the devil and assume that you'll know what that means. So, so let me just fill in some blanks for you. That means some of you all need to put some restrictions on your device because there's some things that you can't keep from looking at. Uh, some of you all need to delete an app because it leads you into some unhealthy, ungodly temptation. Some of you all need to cancel a streaming platform because of the content that you can't stop consuming. That's what it means to resist the devil. Put up a fight against that guy. Don't lay down your arms. Say, so what does that have to do with submitting to God? Well, Jesus told us in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve two masters. You, you cannot serve God and the devil. And if you fall for every one of Satan's temptations, then guess who you're submitting to? Not God. Number two, draw near to God. If I'm going to submit to God, I've got to resist the devil. I need to draw near to God, he says in verse 8. What does that mean? It means do something that takes you in God's direction. Don't, don't put your relationship with God on autopilot. Make some intentional movements toward him you know we we do pretty good when we first get saved you remember when you got saved man I remember when I got saved 25 years ago God saved me out of sin I was hungry I was excited I was ready to leave that life of sin and I started making some intentional movements toward God I started doing something that I never did before I started going to church I did something else I'd never did before. I started reading my Bible. I did something else I didn't do before. I started praying. I started taking steps, and I started drawing nearer to God in my relationship. But I've discovered that we do really good on the front end, and we take some steps, but then we kind of get into this, this zone or this comfort zone where we have taken some steps, but now we're comfortable with where we are, and we just put it on autopilot, and we coast down the highway of our relationship with God. And James says, don't do that. Don't do that. Keep drawing near to God. Keep making movements towards God. What are some intentional steps that you can take? Well, here's one. Read your Bible. The Bible is a direct route to God. It comes directly from God. It goes directly to God. If you are not reading your Bible on a regular basis, you ought to start reading your Bible on a regular basis. That's going to help you draw near to God. 
You might say, Pastor, I've been doing that. I've been doing good. I, I, I'm following my Bible reading schedule. That is, that's great. You want to know another step you can take that will take you towards God with the Bible? Memorize a verse. Oh, I know the common excuse why my memory is not very good. doesn't matter. It's the activity of trying to memorize that verse. Do you know how I memorize a verse? I, I take a note card and I write it down by phrase. And so I write the first phrase. If there's a comma, I drop down and write another phrase. I break it down into phrases. I'll take that note card, put it in my pocket, and I'll carry it around with me for a while. And in the morning, I'll get it out, and I'll read that first phrase, and I'll, I'll say it over to myself. And I'll do that a few times until I can say that phrase. And then I'll move on to the next phrase. And I just do that throughout the day. So I might interact with that verse for 15 minutes that day in, in different segments of two to three minutes. And by the end of the week, I pretty well got that verse memorized. Let me tell you something. If, you, if you've been in that lane and you, you've made some steps towards God, but you feel like you're kind of on autopilot, now there are some things that you can do to take a step towards Him. Memorizing a verse of Scripture that has to do with some area in your life that you want to work on is a great way to do that. A Bible study. You realize that church isn't the only place that you can study your Bible, don't you? That, that, that Sunday school teachers aren't the only person who can get resources to study the Bible? I'm telling you, one of the greatest things you can do for your own personal walk with God is to do your own Bible study, to scratch below the surface, get you a resource, get you a study guide. Just, just, just look up, get a concordance, and search out words in Scripture. If you need help with that, let me know. I'm glad to help you. I can give you resources and that sort of thing. But I am telling you, if you're here and you're saying, you know what, I want to follow James's guidance and I want to draw near to God, what can I do? You can, you can take a step towards Him. There's so many ways that we can draw near to God. We can pray, we can praise, we can go to church, we can serve in ministry, we can love people the way that God told us to love people, we can forgive people that we've got unforgiveness in our heart towards. I'm telling you, all of those things are movements in God's direction. And here's the good news, you're never as far away from God as it may seem. Because James says, if you draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. You might be sitting here today feeling like you're far away from God. You're not where you need to be, where you want to be. And you feel like, oh, I don't even know where to start. But I'm telling you, if you'll just take one step in his direction, all of a sudden the gap begins to close. Because if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. It's never as far as it seems. But there's also good news for the godly. You might be sitting here and saying, you know what, I, I've tried to live a godly life. I know I'm not perfect, but I've not had these major backsliding episodes in my life. Well, can I tell you there's good news for you? Because in this verse, it implies that there's always room to grow closer to God. Draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. Hey, that applies to everybody. That means that you can get closer to God from where you are now. No matter how long you live on planet earth, no matter how much you do, you can always get closer to God. Do you realize there's never been a Christian who lived on planet earth that said, you know what, I've maxed out. I've leveled out in this Christian life thing. I have nowhere to go to from here except for heaven. Now, I've met a few people who think they've reached that point, but I've never met a Christian to actually reach that point. Isn't that good news? That, that you can get saved when you're a child, and you can keep drawing near to God until you live to be 100 years old or older. So no matter where you are, make a move in God's direction. 
Number three, cleanse your hands and your heart. Cleanse your hands and your heart. Verse 8 goes on to say this, another sentence. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What is he saying to us? He's saying, hey, look, you, you need to work on getting rid of some of your bad habits. There are some things that you take in your hands that you ought not have there. And he also says we need to get rid of some bad patterns of thought. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking about the mind there. Well, that makes sense because Jesus told us in Matthew 15 that our lust begins internally. It begins in our heart and it works its way out externally. And so if we have a lust problem that James identifies here and that lust is drawing us away, that lust is a heart problem and that lust is a hands problem. It's an internal problem and it's an external problem. So we need to let go of sinful habits and we need to cleanse ourselves from toxic thoughts. Now... Don't assign one narrow band to this meaning. That, that idea of cleaning up our thinking doesn't just mean that we think vile, vulgar, sensual thoughts all the time. It can mean that we have become very critical in our thinking, very negative in our thinking. Life gives you some hits. It knocks you down sometimes. And it's easy for you and I to get into this pattern of thinking that everything is bad and I'm a victim or this is never going to get any better. And I'm telling you, that type of thinking is not from God. And James says, you need to clean that out, friend. You need to wash that out. You need to get away from that. Now, I acknowledge that's easier said than done. Patterns of thought oftentimes are harder to break than habits, aren't they? And so we need something that's going to help us do that. Well, the Word of God is like water. It will wash us, the Bible says, cleanse our minds. But, but can I offer to you an observation and an association from Scripture? Now, let me give the disclaimer. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a licensed counselor. But I have noticed something in Scripture that we've been neglecting. Well over a hundred times... Fasting is mentioned in the Bible. You search it out. Old Testament to New Testament. Fasting is mentioned over a hundred times in the Bible for its spiritual benefits. When God introduced fasting and God recommends fasting and God prescribes fasting in the Bible, it is never dietary. Uh, it's never for dietary purposes. It is for spiritual purposes. There is something about fasting Uh, That helps heighten our spiritual acumen. Oftentimes he will say fast and pray if we're uh, praying about something. But I have also realized that fasting is known and practiced in the health and wellness realm as a means of detoxing. Have you noticed that? Right. If you're going to go get blood work done, they want you to fast, don't they? Well, don't, don't eat or drink anything after this. And now it's like midnight. It used to be a long time, didn't it? I mean, like, it seemed like used to. You had to like fast for three days before you could go do that thing. Now they've really reduced it down. But what about this? How about when you're having symptoms and they can't figure out what the problem is and they think that it may be food-related, they will have you fast from a certain type of food. You might have a gluten allergy. Well, we need you to fast from wheat. Don't consume any wheat. Let's see if these things change up. Uh, we think you might have a dairy allergy, uh, lactose intolerance. So we want you to exclude all dairy from your diet. See if that, we fast those out. What does it do? It helps detox. It helps those things purge from our body, kind of a reset, those types of things. Here's my observation. Is it possible? 
Is it possible that you and I need to do some fasting? Not for our health benefits, but for our spiritual benefits? If I'm having trouble cleansing my hands and, more importantly, cleansing my head from some of these things that I I shouldn't be embracing in my thought life, perhaps, maybe, if I just fasted and I detoxed from that for a day or two, that would be the catalyst that I need uh, to purify my heart. Just an observation. Number four, change your attitude towards sin. Verse number nine. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. James is not promoting asceticism. Now, there are some religions that do that and have done that, that say, if it is enjoyable, it is sinful. Don't do it, right? There's been some some groups in history who've tried to live that life. The monastery life is a life of that way. You've got to you've got to clench, purge your life of anything that is enjoyable. You cannot enjoy life and be godly. That is not what James is saying. James is not promoting asceticism. James is pointing out our attitude toward sin. We have self-justified our own sin and we've been desensitized to the sins of others to the point that we feel no sorrow over sin. He says, you're laughing your way through life, pursuing your own pleasures when you ought to be heavy and broken and afflicted over the sin that is around you. It should bother you when sin doesn't bother you. We laugh, we live life pursuing our own pleasures and never shed a tear over the depravity of sin. Hey, you know what? I believe abortion is sin. But you know one of the things that bothers me about abortion is that I can live with it. Why? Because I've become desensitized to it. It was legalized the year before I was born. My entire life it's always been legal. Now is it not only legal but it is fought for as a fundamental right of women's reproductive health. And so, so we've become desensitized to the point to where uh, there, are, there are thousands of prenatal infants who are being executed in the womb And I live my life without giving thought to it. James says, hey, sin ought to break our hearts. We need to change our attitude towards sin. Instead of laughing it off, we need to be crying about its destructiveness. You know, there are certain people in the Bible who convict me when I read their story. Job convicts me. When I read Job chapter 1, and I read what Job lost, and I read how Job in faithfulness, worships God. Man, it convicts me hard. Another guy who convicts me in Scripture is Ezra. Ezra chapter 9 describes Ezra's brokenness over sin. See, Ezra was a priest, and Ezra was working in in, in the post-fall Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that had been dismantled by Nebuchadnezzar when he took control of Jerusalem. And he's been making some progress. Nehemiah has come along and he's rebuilding the walls. And it looks like God is bringing revival to Jerusalem. But then Ezra gets a report in Ezra chapter 9. And the way he responds to it is the way I want to respond to sin. It says in Ezra 9, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even to the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. 
For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this, Ezra says, I rent my garment and my mantle. I plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. That's where we get our word astonished. It means to be dazed or bewildered. Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonied, devastated, until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up from my heaviness. And having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush." To lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Can I point something out to you? Ezra is not the guilty party. But Ezra associates himself with the people of God who have broken God's commands. And he himself is broken over the sin where he says, I'm embarrassed to even lift up my head to you, God, because of our sin. That's what James is talking about. That change in attitude toward our sin so that we don't just go through life pursuing our own pleasure. We actually have sorrow over sin. Our attitude toward sin needs to change. Fifth, James says, humble yourselves. In verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of God. He will lift you up. This means to assign yourself to a lower rank, to demote yourself. More than once, the Bible warns us of not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We all have this tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. That's because we all have a problem with pride. It is universal. Whether it is disguised in self-doubt or it is paraded in hubris, we all have a problem with pride. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean sometimes it's our pride that says, well, I could never get up there and do that because I just, I just don't have the, the gifts that some people have. No, what you're really saying is, I would never get up there and do that because of the risk of embarrassment it would bring to me. That's pride. That's not humility. That's false humility. So pride sometimes disguises itself as self-doubt. Other times it parades itself around as hubris. Look at me. I'm the greatest. Did you see what I just did there? You ought to celebrate me. Right? It comes in all forms and fashions. But theologians are agreed from the earliest church fathers that pride is the root of all sins. It's a strong statement. Our pride resists submission to God and instead relies for self-reliance. Pride doesn't want to bow down to God. Pride doesn't want to say, God, I can't without you. Pride doesn't want to say, God, you need to guide me. Pride says, I've got this. I can do this. I've been through tougher things than this. I will make it happen. Let me tell you, there are times in life when you and I need to bear up under the load. But the majority of the time, you and I just need to submit under the heavy hand of God and humble ourselves. Number six, stop being a critic. Stop being a critic. 
Verses 11 and 12, that's what he's talking about. Speak not evil one of another. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother, speaketh evil of the law and judges the law. These two verses of being, speak about being critical and judgmental of other Christians. Don't speak evil of one another, brethren. This type of criticism is indicative of self-righteousness. The critic is a critic because they see themselves as being more righteous than the person they're criticizing. I can't believe she would do that. I, would you imagine where he went? I'm telling you what, I would never. James uses a line of reasoning to conclude that the critic is not just judging a fellow believer, but that the critic is also judging the law. And that there is only one who can judge the law. That's the one who gave the law. That's God. There's one lawgiver who can save and destroy. Who are you that are sitting in the seat of the judge? So don't miss James's point. Criticism reveals that you are not submitted to God, but you are actually trying to be his equal. There's not a Supreme Court in heaven. It's not a dig on the Supreme Court. All I'm telling you is that it is not a tribunal of judges. It's not God and eight other judges who judge things. There is one judge, and it is God Almighty. And if you are going around being critical of everybody and everything, then you're trying to do God's job as judge. Scoot over, Lord. think I need to be sitting on that bench with you. Because I tell you what, sister so-and-so, she ain't been living right. Somebody needs to make that call. And so James says, that's not submission. Don't be a critic. He goes on and lastly he says, exchange your will for God's will. He has an extended uh, passage here, verses 13 through 16, where he describes somebody who says, you know what, we're going to make plans, we're going to go there, we're going to spend a year there, we're going to buy and sell and get gain. And James says, whoa, 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 hold on a minute, time out. What you talking about? You're going to go and do this or that. You don't even know what your life is. Your life is a vapor. It appears for a little time and it vanishes away. What you ought to say is that if the Lord will... We'll do this or that. The bowing and the selling again and again, there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is that you excluded God from your planning. This entire scenario is given to illustrate that we tend to be self-willed in the plans that we make for ourselves. We've gotten pretty good at consulting God on how he wants us to act. You know, right? I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with those who do. And, you know, I'm acting pretty good, but I exclude God from my decision-making. I exclude God from my dreaming. I exclude God from my planning. I think about where I want to go and what I want to do with my life and with my money and with my residence and all of these things. And now I'm going to try and be a good Christian while I do that, but I'm not inviting God into that decision. And James says, whoa, 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 hold on. You need to exchange your will for God's will We need to stop thinking my will and start thinking God's will. We we need to exchange this what-do-I-want mentality for what does God want. Now, can I call you out this morning, uh, those of you who are country folk like me? I was born and raised in the hills of Appalachia. And uh, most of us who are born that way, we just assume that, that God got us where he wanted us. I mean, it took a long time to get some people there, but he born us there. 
And so we, we better stay there the rest of our lives. Hold on a minute. Just because you were born in a place doesn't mean God wants you to stay in that place all of your life. I read about a guy named Jonah who was born down there in Israel, and God wanted him to go to Nineveh. I read about a guy named Paul who was born in Syria, and God wanted him to go to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel. And so that's why I'm saying we need to exchange our will for God's will. We need, to, we need to stop just saying, God, how do you want me to act? And we need to stop and say, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to live? What kind of career do you want me to have? You see, because it's about his kingdom, not my kingdom. And he might want you in a different part of his kingdom because he's got a work that you can do over there. But you've never asked him because you've not submitted that part of your life to him. And so James says, exchange your will for God's will. And then James does something that is so very James-like in verse 17. Hey man, he hits us. He hits us with a therefore statement of consequence. After he said all of this, he, he gives you this summary statement, verse 17. Therefore, because of what I just said, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, it is sin. To him. It is sin. This means that James leaves us with no excuse. Now that we know these things, we will be held accountable for these things. There's not a person who's read this, who's heard this, who can come away from this and say, God, I didn't know I was supposed to risk this to the devil. I didn't know I was supposed to draw it. I didn't know I was supposed to humble myself. I didn't know I was supposed to cleanse my hands and my heart. I didn't know that I was supposed to exchange my will for yours. I didn't know that I was supposed to stop being critical. No, James says, now that you know this, if you don't do it, it is sin. Did you know that Bible knowledge is dangerous? If you don't obey it, you folks that have been raised in church your entire life and have consumed hours of Bible teaching are going to be accountable for what you have heard and known. Did you know that's why Jesus started speaking in parables in Matthew 13? We always highlight that a parable sometimes gives an illustration, but if you read the first time Jesus speaks in a parable, his disciples come to him and be like, what, what are you doing? You were speaking real plain back there in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, 7, and 8. But now all of a sudden in Matthew 11 and 12, you're telling stories? You're talking about some guy plowing his field and planting some wheat? What does this mean? We don't even understand. What, what happened? And Jesus says, let me tell you, it's meant for you to get it. So I'm going to speak to you plainly. But the majority of those people out there are going to reject me. And if I give them clear revelation, they're going to be held accountable for that. And so this is a grace to where I shroud it in a parable so that it's not plainly understood and they're not as accountable for it. That's astonishing. That's astonishing to realize that the Bible knowledge that you and I receive is dangerous if we don't obey it. That, that's the same passage where Jesus said, To whom much is given, much is required. And so now that you know that you're supposed to submit to God, the hanging question is, what will you do? Would you bow with me? So we bow our heads for just a moment. The Holy Spirit echoes the voice of God in our ears.
reminding us that he wants us nearer. The entire point of the passage is not to beat us down and to push us away. It is to clear a path, to clear a lane, so that we can come closer. It's an act of God's grace and it is empowered by God's Holy Spirit. So that you and I can actually submit ourselves to God. And through that submission, we draw ever closer to Him. And just so that we don't miss it, James gave us some actions that we need to check off of our list. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the plainness of your word. I thank you that we're not sitting in around in a room today having a nebulous conversation trying to figure out what you meant by what you said, but that you gave a clear revelation and a clear interpretation so that we can know what you said and what you mean by what you said. And so, Father, I pray and ask that we would follow your instructions that we would take the Bible knowledge that we've now received and that we would turn it into obedience. That we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. Father, I pray that for myself and for every brother and sister under the sound of my voice. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.